Listener Production. Hello and welcome to The Briefing. I am Jan Fran and today I'm joined by Katrina Blowers who, Kat, you're looking into the story, well, a story that's come out of Kenya around a starvation cult. Yeah, so this only came to light pretty recently when the bodies of at least 110 people, including children, were found buried in shallow graves. Their frantic relatives had been reporting them missing for months and we're starting to hear stories about exactly what was going on inside that cult because some of the members, including a young boy, managed to escape. His parents would only give them porridge every now and then every evening and and would close them up within the house so that they wouldn't be able to leave and he he only just managed to escape leaving all his siblings still inside the forest and having to go to an orphanage these are situations where people don't even know the status of their loved ones are they alive Yeah, so we're going to be looking into who the charismatic leader of this cult is who's brainwashed so many people into following him and why did it take authorities so long to act. That's our briefing, Jan, on the Kenyan death cult who all believed the end of the world was coming. Yeah, that sounds like an incredible story and one that I'm surprised we haven't heard more of given the scale. So I'm very glad we're covering it today. Um, That is a little bit later. First, as always, the headlines for Tuesday, May 9. Today is budget day. A lot of it has leaked already. So here is a wrap up of the main things we can expect to be announced today. First up. We're expecting a budget surplus. It's going to be our first one in 15 years. A modest one, though, $4 billion, but that's still a more than $40 billion improvement on what they were forecasting back in October, and that's all because of high employment, wages growth, and some higher commodity prices on exports. Yeah, so that basically means that there's um, higher prices we're charging or we're getting for coal and iron ore and gas and and, and all of the other things that we export. Uh, you know, this is something that <laughs> Chalmers is going all out here with the budget surplus, even though it's tiny, uh, because it's something that the coalition has always been harping about in budgets. We need to get back to a surplus. We need to get back to a surplus. And and he feels like he's been able to achieve something that um, that the coalition hasn't really been able to do. It comes at a pretty rocky time, this budget. Um, obviously, I don't need to tell you, um, cost of living pressures are very high. Inflation's quite high. Um, a lot of people just doing it very tough out there. So there's a $14.6 billion package to address the cost of living. Unclear exactly where the money will go. So that we're a little bit light on the details. Of course, that'll come, um, I imagine after all of the reporters get to leave the budget lockout. <laughs> yes. Got to love that lockout. I've been in a couple of those myself. Uh, Actually, it's a, it's a lock in. It's a lock in. It is. People are locked in and they're not allowed to leave. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually quite a nice break from social media and from work emails if you, you know, <laughs> inundated with all of that stuff. Uh, but look, where else is this money coming from? It's not just due to high commodity prices. It's also due to taxes on gas industry profits, which are going to be fast-tracked to pick up revenue, which wasn't going to be paid until the 2030s. It's mostly going to electricity bill relief, as we told you about on the briefing yesterday, and that's going to 
mostly impact pensioners, small businesses and people on government payments. Um, as we also mentioned yesterday, that subsidy package has got some mixed reviews. The Federal Greens are pushing for a bit more. Defence, um, I mean, this one's already been announced, $19 billion going towards modernising Australia's Defence Force. That's something that we've been talking about now for well, um, some time, um, the, the rise of China there in the Pacific, submarines. All I hear is about defence these days. <laughs> and housing. So this is a novel idea. Family and friends who want to buy a house together can, under an overhaul to the first home guarantee and its regional counterparts. So this means that you can purchase a home with as little as a 5% deposit and the government will assure the remaining 15%. Yeah, that was previously just family members, but now you can you can just do it with a mate. So if you want to buy a house with a mate and you want to end a friendship, <laughs> it's now <laughs> available to you. Go ahead and do that. Um, $150 million being allocated to improve the Great Barrier Reef. There's also $262 million for national parks. We won't go into the numbers too much because, my goodness, it's the morning and none of this is really going to sink in, but that's sort of generally where we're headed. <laughs> And I know a lot of mums and dads are really excited about this promise to make childcare cheaper. So early childhood education is going to get a bit of a funding boost. Also a funding boost for the training of early childhood education workers. And if you're a single parent, the cutoff age for getting financial support for your kids is being raised from 8 to 14. And that's going to help out around 57,000 single parents. Indeed. And um, as I said, once everybody gets to leave the budget lock in um we'll we'll have a little bit more information so stay tuned for that uh, on tomorrow's show no doubt an inquiry examining the Bruce Lerman Brittany Higgins case has been looking into how it was handled, including by police and prosecutors. Now, Lerman, who was accused of raping Brittany Higgins in a parliamentary office in 2019, has maintained his innocence and there have been no findings against him. It has emerged that an Australian federal police report found Higgins to be evasive, uncooperative and manipulative, with the ACT Director of Public Prosecutions, Shane Drumgold, telling the inquiry he didn't release it to Lerman's team because it contained irrelevant material and a basic misguided analysis of the importance of certain evidence and opinions on credibility based on inadmissible evidence. And Higgins has never responded directly to the issues raised in the inquiry. Yeah, I mean, the summation of that is that the Director of Public Prosecutions just didn't feel like that report was uh, good enough or worthy enough to share it with Lehman's team. He also talked about Lisa Wilkinson's Logie-winning speech. I don't know if you remember, Kat. She won the uh, the Logie for the report that she did on Brittany Higgins and she mentioned Brittany in that speech and mm. that ended up delaying Brittany's court case. Drumgold said that he accepted that he didn't fully comprehend the potential impact of Wilkinson's speech uh, should she win and that he, quote-unquote, entirely misread the situation. To The Voice now, two rival groups campaigning against the Indigenous Voice to Parliament are about to merge. So this is uh, Tony Abbott and Jacinta Price's group. It's called Fair Australia. They are set to join with a group run by Warren Mundine called Recognise a Better Way. The two are going to come together. They're going to form a new body. It's going to be called Australians for Unity. Now, they both voted to do this because I guess their concern was that they were hampering their chances of success 
uh, because as they say, the yes lobby they believe is better funded uh, and they could probably do more if they came together rather than working on the no campaign separately. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me that this um, this happened. I think it was always going to be on the cards if they could, you know, a- agree on key arguments. Meanwhile, the Yes campaign has just gotten a major boost. The NRL has announced its support. Officials will confirm it ahead of the Indigenous round in a couple of weeks' time, and that means they become the first major football code in Australia to take a unified stand on the issue. The AFL still considering it. So far, just two clubs, West Coast Eagles and Collingwood, are the only ones to say they're in favour, um, I guess, given the AFL's history in this space. Um, they need to be quite sort of careful about how they handle this issue. And to Queensland, the state's police commissioner has warned that there could be fatal consequences uh, if people who are concerned about youth crime continue to take the law into their own hands. So what that is referring to is an incident that happened over the weekend. There was a mob of, look, the numbers differ, but maybe 30 to 60 people that surrounded a home in Rockhampton after a social media post accused two teenage residents who allegedly lived in that home of criminal activity. And some of the videos, I don't know if you saw them, Kat, they... They were a bit intense. People were angry. The police were out in numbers. They were sort of barricading this home and and things seemed tense. In one part of the video, you see them chasing one of these kids down the street. Look, a lot's been said about this. I think it's so dangerous to, you know, descend upon a home and make accusations when things haven't been proven. I get the frustration. I live in Queensland. Youth crime is shaping up to be probably the biggest issue ahead of next year's election. People are frustrated about it. It just seems to be getting worse. And I I understand residents' concern, but my God, this is a complex social mm. issue and it can't be fixed just by chasing people and going to their homes and banging on their doors. Well, there's some context to this as well because that particular demo that happened over the weekend was organised by a former One Nation candidate whose name's Torin O'Brien. He says that he organised it after his sister's home was um, allegedly broken into. One of the really concerning elements for this, and there are a lot of concerning elements, but one of them is the fact that people are kind of being razzed up on social media, often with information Mm. that is inflammatory, information that is incorrect, information that doesn't contain evidence. Um, And this guy had posted on social media that he was prepared to offer people money if they dobbed in their mates or if they were able to give him information about who might have broken into his sister's home. So there's there's all these sorts of um, incentives for people to rat on other people, uh, but very, very little evidence. And when you're talking about children, which, yeah. you know, was the case here of, of people who are under 18, well, then you end up in very tricky and, and messed up territory. All right, Jan Fran, that wraps up our headlines for today. Up next, we're going to our briefing topic on the Kenyan starvation cult. Late last month, authorities in Kenya made their way into a remote forest to the north of Mombasa. What they found was horrifying. The bodies of nine children exhumed in eastern Kenya showed signs of starvation and asphyxiation. 
So all up, more than 110 bodies have now been exhumed, but authorities believe they'll find many more. That's because nearly 500 people have been reported missing by relatives who fear their loved ones have been brainwashed by the charismatic leader who led a cult known as the Good News International Church. Caroline Kimo is a journalist with The Guardian who's been in Kenya speaking with many of those relatives in her coverage of this story, and she joins us on The Briefing now. Take us back to when people in Kenya first started raising the alarm that something strange was happening with this particular cult. Right, last month is when we started to hear initial inklings and, and some kind of initial alarm from the whistleblower who raised attention to the issue that, um, you know, he had rescued a child from from the forest, which is quite remote, quite difficult to reach. And the child had given them such information that put them in a place of concern, including that people were dying in the forest out of starvation and, and other allegations as well. What do we know about Pastor Mackenzie, who is the, the the spiritual figurehead for this church? Is he charismatic? What have we been able to glean from his sermons online? Pastor Mackenzie is a controversial figure. Like he is seen as very charismatic. If you talk to locals, they will say, literally, talk to this guy for. 30 minutes and you might join that starvation cult. This is how convinced people are of how he can convince people to join this cult of sorts. So he was initially quite mainstream as far as church goes. He ran this church called the Good News International Church, which locals say was pretty mainstream as far as the teachings go. He did still have his signature doomsday messaging, but then just kind of going into the period before, just before the church closed in in 2019, then he started with messaging that was a bit more extreme, kind of saying that people should not eat or go to school, you know, partake in what he called worldly activities, including use of cosmetics for women. So I think at that point as well, even among the the locals, there was some pushback and um, some concern around, you know, radicalization. He's also been in crosshairs with law enforcement before, where he uh, was accused of radicalizing children and actually was in court on that case. But then eventually he was let go. So right now the courts are actually looking into how was this case handled? Was there any misconduct on the part of the judicial officers who handled this because, I mean, it did take nearly four years to hear that case. And then, uh, you know, he was eventually let go. So right now, the question is, how did this go on for so long without his activities being detected, despite the fact that he'd been in and out of issues with law enforcement for a couple of years before this whole incident blew up? How did he convince people to fast, to in effect, starve themselves to death? I mean, that's the question that's blowing everybody's mind right now. Ideally, people would want to look at the followers of his cult and think, you know, perhaps it was just extreme vulnerability. There was people who are in extreme poverty. But I mean, the truth is that his followers come from quite a bit of a a range. Like it's such a mixed group, i.e. they're not only 
from one specific class. We know one incident that drew people's attention was one of an air hostess. You know, that's a very kind of middle income person. Part of the cult um, allegedly sold her property and, and went to follow him into the forest. But it was even a mix, not only locals, but people from neighboring countries as well. We're talking Tanzania, Uganda, maybe just a handful, um, but also including even Nigeria. So he had such a wide reach. And, you know, perhaps this could be attributed to his televangelism, where he also had an online presence and, and, um, and that kind of thing. So the message was, from what I can understand anyway, was that the world is going to end and people need to to fast or starve themselves and tear up their education certificates so then they would go to heaven. Is that right? The messaging was quite mixed, but the idea was essentially that there was a sense of either the world coming to an end or that the second coming of you know Christ would happen in in the forest so quite a mixed messaging and some you know reports too that he said that children would have to be starved first followed by women and then men although that was not verified but it is supported by the fact that the majority of bodies that have been discovered and that have been exhumed have been of children uh, so far now, postmortems have found that with children as well, that starvation wasn't the only cause of death, haven't they? Right. So current reports are also showing that there was some cases of strangulation. So I spoke with one woman who said that her husband seemed under threat. She said that when she spoke with him and he was in the forest, he gave the impression that he couldn't just leave and that, you know, if he did, he might be under threat or that his life could potentially be taken. And this is something that I did not only hear from her, I heard as well from a minor that I spoke with. Tell us a bit more about this forest area where the majority of these bodies have been found. I believe it's called Shakahola and it was a tract of land that was owned by Pastor Mackenzie. It, it was really remote with, you know, no internet or phone connection. And he then partitioned it into villages which were given biblical names and his followers had to buy those plots. Tell us a bit more about that. The Shakahola Forest is quite remote. It's um, around 50 miles from the town, Malindi Town. And even when we, because when I went there, it was cordoned off at that time. But essentially, looking at some of the cars that had gone into the forest, they literally had scratches on them because they were carving out pathways into the forest. This is how still very inaccessible it is. There aren't necessarily... Um, clear pathways in, especially to some of the areas where these villages were set up. Some of them are quite a bit central inside the forest and even rescue efforts have taken some time. They're still ongoing. You know, around 61 people have been rescued from the forest. Some of them severely traumatized, some of them not even wanting to be removed from the forest and quite weak and emaciated. So it's... Um, you know, rescue efforts are ongoing, but but again, activists have said that they, the the rescue efforts could be faster. 
I just can't even imagine what it's been like for you covering this story and, and hearing the stories from relatives whose, whose loved ones have gone missing. They didn't know where they were. They still probably, for many of them, because they're still exhuming bodies, they don't know what's become of them. Some of these stories must have been incredibly harrowing. Yeah, I mean, it, it was really difficult, mostly because some of these children, the, the families of the followers or who are former followers themselves were left quite vulnerable and had been subjected to these atrocities by the, their parents themselves. One of the teenagers who I spoke with told me how, you know, his parents would only give them porridge every now and then every evening and, and would close them up within the house so that they wouldn't be able to leave. And all, he, he only just managed to escape, leaving all his siblings still inside the forest and having to go to an orphanage. These are situations where people don't even know the status of their loved ones. Are they alive? And sometimes what was even most harrowing was to see some incidences, one of the people I spoke to, for instance, at the morgue um, had literally been told by his his friends that, oh, your mother is one of the people who was who was killed. So seeing all of this, you know, it was quite a quite a dark and grim situation overall. So Pastor McKenzie was arrested in March, then he was released, but he's now in custody again. Has he been charged? Last I followed this late last week, he had not been officially charged. But what happened is that he was in this local court in Malindi, but was moved to another court with uh, the capacity to take on higher level charges, including terrorism and child trafficking. So that suggests, based on the prosecution's move uh, to reportedly want to bring greater charges against him and the other men who are suspected to have been involved in the the atrocities. So he will definitely be facing a wide range of charges as to what those are. That that isn't very clear at the moment, but potentially we'd be looking at charges of terrorism, murder, kidnapping, cruelty towards children uh, and that kind of thing. That was Caroline Kimo, a journalist with The Guardian. And as investigations continue into the depth of the horrors of this cult, people will be picking apart how it got so much traction to begin with. So Kenya is mostly a Christian country, but lately it's seen a rise in the popularity of evangelical preachers and new churches are flourishing. We'll be keeping you posted in the headlines when more charges are laid against the preacher of this cult, Pastor Mackenzie. He's now in custody in Shenzhou, which is just near the port city of Mombasa. Listener.